Hi everyone, thanks for joining us this morning. We hope that this morning is an encouraging time for you and your family as we worship our God and Savior through song and prayer and through the studying of His Word. I just wanted to let those of you who don't know, know that um, there is a letter posted on the website and a video that is going to be posted this morning as well giving you an update about the plans for reopening Crestwick for having services. Uh, Stephen Reed did a video to give us some more insight and understanding as to what's going on and the complexities involved in opening up. And there's a letter that uh, the reopening task force has put together to help you better understand uh, the process that we're going through and how carefully and seriously we're doing this and uh, how badly we do want to reopen. So please take a look at that and uh, give us your feedback after you've read the letter and after you've seen the video. We'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, reopening.
Cresswick. I'd like to read from Psalm 9 before we pray together. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O God Most High. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today that we can praise you, one who is the Most High. Thank you for each person who is viewing this, uh, this video. We would ask that you'd be with uh, Steve, with the rest of the pastoral staff, for the lead leadership of the church. But, in, but in, in all things, Father, that you would be glorified and honored. We ask that you'd be with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're continuing on in our study through the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. This is the word of God. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm to a trumpet blast and to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Lord, we would just ask that as we come to your word uh, this morning, by your spirit, you will enlighten us and uh, allow us to see your truth. We pray that you'll open our hearts to receive it so that there will be a harvest of righteousness produced in our midst. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have been uh, tracking with me throughout this entire series through Hebrews, uh, you will know, unless I have done an absolutely deplorable job in trying to communicate what this book is about, that a lot of this book is about the superiority of Jesus Christ over everything else. Uh, he is categorically better than everything else. And, and so you sort of establish him preeminently over the entire universe, and, and it, it's almost a deductive argument. I mean, if Jesus is better than everything, then anything that is a thing you can propose, Jesus will be better than it. But what the author does is he, he establishes that sort of deductive framework, but then he begins to give you examples. Jesus is better than everything. So is he better than angels? Is the sun superior to angels? Yes. Look at what scripture says. You know, Hebrews 1. Is, is Jesus, is the sun superior to, to Moses? Yes. Is he superior to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood? Yes. Is he superior to the sacrifices? Yes. Is, is the covenant of which he is the mediator and the one who inaugurates it through the shedding of his blood, is that covenant superior to the old covenant? Yes. And so you just keep working through and again and again and again in so many categories in diverse ways, you're being told the sun is supreme. The sun is the best. The sun is better than everything. Now, this is not sort of designed to denigrate or to run down or be insulting towards God's revelation in the past. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 will make note of the fact that the old covenant came with glory. It did. It had its own glory. And yet compared to the glory of Christ in the new covenant, it's almost like the old covenant had no glory whatsoever. Now, that's a relative comparison. On its own, the revelation of God in his covenant law 
at that time was the greatest revelation in all of the universe. And so it was magnificent and glorious. It came with, with, with glory and power. But in comparison, in contrast to the new covenant inaugurated through the blood of Jesus Christ, it's like that old covenant had no power or majesty or glory at all. And so that's what our author is sort of focusing on here, is he begins in verses 18 through 21 to remind you of how impressive the theophany or the revelation of God was at Sinai. It was incredible. Uh, the children of Israel had seen the power of God in some manifestations in the plagues. They had experienced redemption through Passover substitutionary blood. They had been miraculously delivered from bondage and slavery. They are brought into the wilderness, and there they are at Sinai. And God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush as I am who I am, that God now descends upon Mount Sinai to reveal to his people who he is. And what kind of a revelation does he give them? I mean, without being irreverent, God could have manifested himself any way that he wanted to. God could have manifested himself as, a, as an old man with a long beard sitting in a rocking chair, just sort of cozy and comfortable and sweet. He could have done that. Sort of invited the children of Israel to kind of come up and he could sort of just pat them on the head. I mean, God, he could have manifested himself that way if he wanted to. He, he could have manifested himself as this just, I mean, I don't know how you manifest yourself precisely as an abstract quality, but uh, you know, he could have just manifested himself as some sort of um, amorph amorphous impression of love. So that everyone who sort of drew into his presence just felt this, this blissful awe, this, this delighted, warm fuzziness. More seriously, God could have called people into his presence and, and just impressed upon them how, how, how deeply and profoundly he knew them and cared for them. That he actually, genuinely, truly loved them in a, in a deep and profound way. He could have manifested himself any way that he wanted to. The way that he manifested himself, though, was to come down onto a mountain and, and to put out warnings that even if you touch the mountain, you will die. In fact, in, uh, the, in, in Exodus, the instructions are given, if a person or even an animal strays past the boundaries onto the mountain, they must be killed with arrows or stoned to death. That is, if someone touches the mountain, you can't even touch them. Like, you can't go and grab them and pull them back. You have to kill them from a distance. No one can touch the mountain. Even the executioners can't go into that sacred precinct. The whole message is stay away. The mountain can't be touched. It was burning with fire. Paradoxically, it's, it's burning with fire, but it's pitch dark. Is darkness. What's the mood? The mood is gloom. Darkness, gloom, and storm. A terrifying image of the storm. You have this in Revelation 4 surrounding the throne. The Sinai uh, theophany motif again. 
The imagery says, stay away. The storm and the power of the lightning and thunder and the wind was terrifying. To a trumpet blast. To such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. The whole atmosphere was an atmosphere of terror and fear and death. The people begged not to hear the voice of God. It is not an easy and light and flippant thing to hear the voice of God. He is a dread majesty. They could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. That is, in some ways, they got it. They understood this area was reserved for God, and no one had the ability or the right to trespass into God's holy domain. In fact, it was so terrifying that even Moses himself said, I am trembling with fear. Nonetheless, Moses himself was willing to uh, obey God by going up and going into the cloud theophany and the glory, trusting that God, that he would not die on the basis of God's special grace and forgiveness to him individually, being called out to come into the presence of God. Moses trusted that God would protect him and keep him safe. That was an incredibly powerful and terrifying manifestation of the presence of God and the character of God and the consequences of being close to God. There was a, an awful weight of holy glory which caused sinners to be terrified. And the author says, you have not come to a mountain like that. That was the old experience. A sinner terrified at the presence of a holy God. A mountain that you can't touch. A mountain that even an animal can't go onto unless it's, without being put to death. Even Moses, the covenant mediator, was terrified. The people begged not to hear the voice of God. But that's not your mountain. That's not your covenant. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Commentators frequently note that you're sort of given seven things about Sinai, and then you're given seven things about Mount Zion here, the mountain that you've come to. So the old covenant, they come to Sinai. New covenant, we don't, come to, we don't go to Sinai. We don't go to the, the old covenant. We don't get that, the tablets of stone. We come to a different mountain. We come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Now note very carefully the heavenly Jerusalem. It's not the earthly Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem was a prophetic shadow of the fulfillment. We come to the city of the living God. Mount Zion, as the psalmist will say, the, the joy and splendor of all the earth. The, the, the place where, where David reigns as the adopted son of God. It's, it's really the city of God where Jesus reigns. 
and, and in the prophetic vision, all of the nations stream up to Mount Zion in the end. That they all come to where God is. And, and, and God actually comes down to where they are. Revelation, you know, the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven down to earth. And so the idea here is, you're not coming to Sinai, a, a place of, of storm and terror and gloom and death. You're not coming to this, this bare mountain in the wilderness. You are coming to the very city of the living God. Mount Zion, very often, uh, particularly in the Psalms, is, is, is sort of, um, the connotation of it is royal splendor, delight, and joy, and safety, and peace. That's the mountain you come to through Jesus Christ. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. <coughs> Excuse me. The word assembly, uh, the word translated as assembly here, is only used in this one location in our New Testament. It, it, it means sort of a, a celebratory festival. It, it, it's an enormous party. You know, it, it's a tremendous feast. And, and that is what we have been called to. In fact, in the Old Testament, this, this word, this language is often used uh, of, of any like, really super abundant, joyful occasion. Where, where things flow lavishly. And, and so we have come to the, to the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and thousands, upon, uh, thousands upon thousands of angels, innumerable angels. And what are those angels doing? They're not guarding the holiness of God to strike us dead for trespassing. They are, they are not sort of uh, dressing for war. They are lost in reveling and joy and partying, uh, in a positive sense, in the presence of God. And we join them. We join the angels in the presence of God in joyful assembly. We, we join the ongoing lavish banquet and festival that the king himself is throwing in his city for all of his servants and children. Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Now, if it wasn't for that second clause, whose names are written in heaven, we would almost be forced to take this language of to the church of the firstborn as meaning the church which belongs to the firstborn son. That is, this is a reference to we have come to the church of the Son, that is, we have come to the church of Jesus. We have come to the church of the Son of God, the firstborn of the Father. So bringing, bringing over some of that Colossians language, perhaps, in terms of concept. But the second clause, whose names are written in heaven, definitively shows that this is not the Son, that is the Son of God. The Son of God would have a singular name, not whose names, plural, are written in heaven. So you put that together, and we have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. These are those who have their names in the Lamb's book of life. And what's their status? 
The word church, of course, simply means assembly. And so we have come to an assembly, and, and everyone in that assembly has their name written in heaven. I mean, there's enough to meditate on that uh, sort of off to the side, by the way, to think that your name is actually written in heaven through Jesus. But there actually is a book of life, and your name, your name is there. Think of your own name written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. I, I, I have a friend um, who is very brilliant, young, young fellow, and he uh, just recently completed his uh, master's degree at York University in some kind of space engineering some science thing. I have, I have absolutely no idea uh, what it's about. But uh, a couple of years ago, we were talking about you know, what he may or may not do in terms of education. And, and I encouraged him to pursue his graduate uh, degree and possibly a PhD. And uh, I just said to him, listen, all I ask of you after our conversation, all I ask of you is when you write your thesis, just find a way to get me in the acknowledgement section. And so this week, uh, I got an email from him, and he said, Steve, just so you know, um, you know, after our conversation, I, I found a way to give you an acknowledgement. And so you are now, if your name is, in the, is on page three of the front matter of a thesis that's in the York Online Library. And, and so that's, that's my claim to fame. Now... As much as it is awfully exciting to have my name enshrined as a joke acknowledgement in a graduate thesis in a subject area I don't understand in the York University Online Library, as much as that is an honor, my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, in the Library of Heaven. If, if you know Jesus Christ, so is yours. I have no idea how many branches of the library in heaven there are, but there's a book in one of those branches. Maybe there's multiple copies in every branch. And our names are there, written by God in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so everyone in that assembly, every one of them have their names written in heaven. And every single one of them is treated as the firstborn. The firstborn, you will recall, in um, the Old Testament era, through primogeniture, was someone who received a double portion of the estate. The firstborn was the one who took over from the patriarch when the patriarch died. The firstborn was born into special privilege and rights. And so the, the image here is you have come to the assembly of 
the firstborn. Every single person in this assembly is of equal status. They are all, in a sense, receiving a double portion from the Father. You go, well, that math doesn't work out. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and this is why philosophy and literature and art and aesthetics always trumps over math and science. The math doesn't work out. How do we how does every one of those people get a double get a double portion of the estate? The point is is metaphorical. The image the image is that as God's child, every one of God's children gets the absolute best. No one there is is sort of divided up into superior and inferior demographics. Birth order is irrelevant. When you lived in history is irrelevant. Your, your skin color, and your ethnicity, your genetics, your DNA, your gender, all of that's irrelevant. There, there's absolutely no discrimination by God at all on the basis of any accidental contingency. So the most powerful language is, is in Galatians and Colossians. In Christ there is neither Jew or Gentile. There isn't slave or free. There isn't male or female. One quick political comment. Over the last few weeks, we have been confronted again by the powder keg of racial tension that exists in what we would like to think is the kindest and most civilized part of the world. Even excluding the United States, we'd like to think that for us here in Canada. And yet, there are obviously an enormous number of people who testify to individual targeted race-based discrimination and systematic, societally structured and endorsed discrimination. My fear is that the church, as in so many areas, will start speaking up with a social conscience about these issues a generation from now. That is, we are always a generation or two behind. It did not used to be that way. The church used to be on the forefront of leading the push for social change and social justice. And yes, the way a lot of people in our world think about social justice, or the, uh, the SJWs, or the social justice warriors, a lot of their agenda items are wrong. The way they're going about it is wrong. But, but if they're wrong, then who is doing it right? So, so easy just to criticize people for doing it wrong. What are we doing as evangelicals and what has the church done? When's the last time anyone in the world actually cared about what we thought because, because we're leading the way in terms of, of caring for the environment? When's, when's the last time the evangelical church was consulted about you know, what ought to be done in the environment? Well, why aren't we being consulted? It's not because of, of religious discrimination. It's because we're not doing anything besides 
in some circles, positively getting in the way. Why isn't the church being consulted about racial reconciliation? Why, why don't people in North America turn to the evangelicals for help in these issues? Frankly, it is not because the media hates Christians. It's because we're not leaders. It's because we haven't spoken up. And then things burst into flames and we tell everyone to calm down and keep the peace, but then we do nothing to address the underlying issues that bring these things up. The church has a message that says, in Christ, now and in the future, there is no discrimination based on social demographics. The entire assembly is seen as God's firstborn. Every individual has the highest possible status. Every individual there is a redeemed image bearer of God. The church has a powerful message of reconciliation. We, it was needed and is still needed in South Africa. Having spent time in South Africa, I'm not an expert by any means in the complexities of the situation there. But the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, that, 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 that whole idea required archbishops, it required biblical theological truth. It required an application of the gospel. The, 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 the horrible state of affairs that we have ongoing in our country with between sort of the, the, the federal government and, and, and Canadian citizens uh, as immigrants and indigenous peoples. We need an application of the gospel. Only God can heal the wounds that have been created. Only the radical forgiveness that comes through Christ can, can even begin to address these wrongs. I, I, I have no idea how to start putting things back together again, but I think I, I do think that one of the, the ways that you start putting things back together again is, is to acknowledge how broken they are and to say, I don't know what to do. Let's actually start talking about it on the basis of these principles. The church has a message that our entire society today absolutely needs to hear. And we need to start sharing it. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all. <laughs> Those who reject Christ and trample down on him, the, the, the Hebrews has already told us the fearful judgment that awaits them. But everyone who comes to God arrayed in union with Jesus, arrayed in his righteousness, they will be judged, they'll be justified. They'll be judged as righteous in his sight. And, and this, is, this is the big one, right? You've come to Mount Zion, that's great. You've come to angels, that's great. You've come to other people, that's great. But, but you've come to God himself. That's incredible. And then see the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous 
made perfect in relation to God because of him, they lack nothing at all. They are righteous through faith, through the work of God, the spirits of uh, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. One day, one day you will be perfect. When you stand in the presence of God, made righteous by faith, you will be perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You don't just come to the covenant community, you come to the leader, head, and inaugurator of the new covenant itself, the one who mediates it and has sealed it by his blood. Remember, in, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you're told to run your race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, you've arrived. You run looking at Jesus. Now, there will come a day when you have come to Mount Zion, the angels, the church, the God, to Jesus. You've reached the finish line. You've crossed the finish line into glory. That long, hard, arduous marathon is over. And having run, looking at Jesus, now you're there in his very presence to Jesus. If, if you can't be motivated to run to Jesus, then nothing will motivate you. He's the goal. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood is the blood that forgives and atones for sin and brings us into all these privileges. Abel was you know, a righteous martyr, slain uh, out of jealousy. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than that. The blood of Christ cries out for forgiveness and mercy upon all who know him. As a result, this is what you can have. This is what awaits those who are united by faith to Christ. Because of that, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. In other words, the people terrified when God spoke on Sinai. Now it's God speaking as the judge out of his heavenly Jerusalem. Do not refuse him. This is what awaits you if you don't. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? In other words, Mount Sinai, the, the warning in Mount Sinai, at Sinai, was, was an earthly warning with, with the strictures of the old covenant. This is God speaking from glory, from his own city, where he sits, on where he sits enthroned, speaking to you, calling you to forsake your sin, calling you to trust in Jesus Christ, his son, and to have eternal life. What are you going to do if you refuse that? This is the only offer of grace. This is the only offer of salvation in all of the world. You, you don't need multiple, you know, 
ways to God because this one gets you there. It's all you need. It's exclusive, but it's sufficient. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken that has created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. At Sinai, with the storm and the earthquake, the, the earth and the mountain shook. And, and God says, you know, there's going to come a time, eschatologically, I'm going to shake things up again. But that's the last time. And the author sort of takes us to say, look, God promises one more time, I'm going to shake things. But this is that's the last time things are going to be shaken. It kind of indicates that anything that's shakable will be removed. What's transient and temporary and shakable is going to be shaken and set aside for good. What remains after that will be immovable. It will be unshakable. What cannot be shaken may remain. The new heavens and new earth will never be convulsed or flooded or scorched by fire. The new heavens and new earth are immovable by the command and decree of God himself. What's coming eschatologically will never be removed, never be shaken, never be destroyed. Therefore, because that's true, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. You want security in life. You have security for eternity. So be thankful. If the government came along to you and said, look, kind of like in the old days, you know, when, when kings were just dispensing pensions to everyone, um, who, who, who was able to do some sort of loyal service, or to their cronies, more like it. To be given a pension by the king meant that you were set for life. That was total security. You'd be thankful. I mean, today, someone shows up to me and says, Steve, just so you know, um, I'm going to give you $100,000 a year for the rest of your life. You'll never have to worry about money. I would be very thankful for that. Um, and in fact, in case you'd like to pool your money to that end, I'm also open to accepting it. But I'd be very thankful. God has given us a kingdom that can never be shaken for eternity. You ought to be thankful. And as you're thankful and so worship God, that is, your thankfulness flows to praise and worship. But how do you worship God? He's still the same God who revealed himself at Sinai. And so you worship God, not flippantly and irreverently, or irreverently, you worship him acceptably with reverence and awe. That is, God is still holy. God hasn't changed. And so, yes, he accepts us. Yes, there's joy. But, but joy and peace and security and love and awe and fear are not mutually incompatible. So we worship him with reverent awe because he is a consuming fire. He's, he's perfectly pure and holy in every way. And we don't, we don't take that lightly. We don't debase the character of God to think we have the liberty to stroll into his presence. As much as it's joy and acceptance through Jesus, as much as there's rejoicing and thanksgiving, God will always be holy. Even the angels who have never sinned, you know, the, the seraphim in, in Isaiah 6, 
They, they, they can't even look at God, but they cover themselves and, and they fly in his presence crying out, holy, holy, holy. That is, that is, they are amazed at the transcendent character of God. Even though there's sinless angels in his presence, they can't endure to see him. No, no, no. God is, of all the things God will be, I, I, I don't think he's likely to, to just be our buddy. He will always be our God. We will always feel the, the weight of glory in his presence. God is a consuming fire. Jesus, I believe, shows us how to relate to God with joy, with love, and with harmony and peace, but also with respect, also with awe, also with holy and just fear. And so may God help us. We're not coming to Sinai. We are coming to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. It's all through Jesus. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth planted deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen. Down through eternity. And